0: turn to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be looking at uh, the last half of the uh, the chapter, and we have seen some amazing things so far um, in the book of Acts, the first 10 and a half chapters. We've really seen the Christian faith And the church there in Jerusalem kind of getting up on its legs for the first time. And we've watched it begin to slowly break away from those real deep Jewish roots. And we've seen so many different milestones along the way. Um, This morning's text really is yet another critical hinge In the Acts account, kind of like steps on a ladder, uh, so much of what we've seen so far is leading up to exactly what we're going to see in our text today. Because this is the text where we really start to see our focus shift uh, geographically and culturally and really strategically. We're going to have a very key change in some of the key players that we've been dealing with. Um, We're going to see Christianity today finally start to be launched into a worldwide mission. And I think that, you know, for us, In addition to all of the obvious historical significance, there's a real personal encouragement, really an exhortation uh, in the text today. You know, as we kind of look at this past work of the Lord, we see not only is it a critical hinge in the Acts account, but we see the way in our own faith it hinges entirely as well on the way that the Lord works in our text today, the response that these new believers have to that. So we'll pay special attention as we go. But let's, uh, as we always do, let's just pray and ask the Lord to really be our teacher and to bless uh, our study today. So, Father... We do thank you so much, Lord, again, for the opportunity to be together, Lord, in these strange times. And Lord, we pray that you would allow all of those distractions, Lord, that are in our minds, in our hearts, Lord, or in our homes, Lord, to help those to fade into the background. Help us to be fully uh, attentive to you, Lord, and the things that your spirit wants to speak to each of us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher, and we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember when we last left off, we left Peter back in Jerusalem. Remember he was defending the work of the Lord, the way that God had opened up the door and he had poured out his spirit there on that small group of Gentiles in the house of Cornelius up at Caesarea, right there on the coast of Israel. And remember that the Jews were amazed, and it seems like they were starting to slowly understand that the gospel indeed was for the whole world completely, and not just for the whole world specifically of the Jewish people. In verse 18, when we finished up last time, we remember it said that they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And as we continue on now, this morning, we're going to see that starting in verse 19, Luke is going to reach back chronologically to really give us a fuller picture geographically at the different ways that the, this ministry to the Gentiles was also being spread by the Spirit out into other Areas. Look at starting in verse 19. We're going to look at God's work in Antioch. It says in verse 19 that now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So again, this carries us back several years to the time immediately following the death of Stephen. Remember, we watched as this wave of persecution that was really incited by Saul of Tarsus, it spread throughout Jerusalem and it pushed many of the Jews out of Jerusalem into those surrounding regions. Um, You saw Samaria to the north, and remember we saw a revival breaking out there in chapter 8. And then even further north, there would have been Phoenicia, which was kind of a narrow strip of coastland along the northeast Mediterranean. That would have been where the ports of Tyre and Sidon were. It's in what is today modern-day Lebanon. Cyprus, of course, that large island there in the northeast Mediterranean. And it mentions here the city of Antioch in Syria. This would have been 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And just as we had seen in that Samaritan scenario, all of these scattered, persecuted followers of Jesus began to share their faith wherever it was they landed, but primarily with their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Remember, they were still bound by these deep Jewish prejudices which really prevented them from understanding that this same message was also for the Gentiles. And yet we're going to see that the Spirit is going to overrule in their hearts just as he had in the hearts of Peter. And probably this is even happening at the very same time that we've seen him working in Peter. And they're going to begin to reach out to the nations because it's in Antioch that everything is about to change. Look at verse 20. It says, "But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus." So although Jews, some of these these scattered new Jesus followers had been born in these Countries. They were from the island of Cyprus. They were from the city of Cyrene, which was a port city actually on the north coast of Africa. It would be modern day Libya. And they were probably a little bit more accustomed to mingling with the Gentiles. So as they returned and started to really resettle into their homelands, they naturally started sharing with their fellow Jewish brethren. And they even then started to go to their neighbors, the Hellenists, and start to share Jesus. Now, we need to point something out. These Hellenists are not quite like the Hellenists that we saw before back in chapter 6. Remember that whole thing about the Hellenist widows. They were Jews who had come from Greek cultures. But these Hellenists here, this is not the same word as we saw used back in chapter 6 where it meant Hellenist Jews. The word here actually means Greeks. In other words, they were Gentiles. These were fully pagan people who lived in one of the most fully pagan cities in all the world, and that was Antioch of Syria. Now, understand, there were at least 16 different Antiochs, in the ancient world. This one was founded about 300 B.C. by Cellulus I. He was one of the inheritors of Alexander the Great's empire. And this guy had this habit of establishing a city and then naming it after his father, Antioch. And he did this about 16 times. So this was Syrian Antioch. Today, it's actually a Turkish city. It has a population apparently of about 3,500. But back then, in the first century, this was a city of more than a half a million people. It was actually ranked the third largest city in all the Roman Empire, just after Rome itself and then Alexandria in Egypt. It was located on the Orontes River, about 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. So it was known as Antioch on the Orontes. It was a beautifully situated, a very carefully planned city. It was a busy port and a commercial center, as well as a real center for luxury and culture. It had these magnificent buildings that helped to give it the name Antioch, the Golden Queen of the East. It was said that the main street was more than four full miles long. It ran right through the heart of the entire center of the city, and it was paved completely with marble. And it had these huge Uh, marble columns on each side the city of Antioch was the only city in the ancient world at its time that actually had the streets lit up at night so all of this beauty and all of this commerce of course attracted this huge cosmopolitan population and they commanded great commercial and political power and yet in addition to being known for all of this What Antioch was really best known for was its gross immorality, perhaps second only to the city of Corinth. What one author wrote is that she was famous for her chariot racing and for a kind of deliberate pursuit of pleasure, which went on literally night and day. So all through this, though all of the, the many gods and goddesses of the Greeks and the Romans and the Syrians, all of them were worshipped here, and yet this was the center of worship of the Greek goddess Daphne. Now Daphne was said to have been a mortal maid who was seduced by the Greek god Apollo, and the worship of Daphne involved this ritualistic, prostitution, all of these other very mysterious and immoral practices. And what it did is it filled the entire city and really created this culture of immorality. So wicked was the ancient city of Antioch that one Roman satirist at the time, Juvenal, wrote that the city of the Syrian Orontes has for long been discharged, or sorry, the sewage ...of the Syrian Orontus has for long been discharged into the Tiber, right? That main river supplying the city of Rome. Meaning that Antioch was so corrupt that it was corrupting the entire Roman Empire. It ranked right up there as a world-class city. What one author also wrote, he said, "...one might say that Jerusalem was all about religion, Rome was all about power... Alexandria was all about intellect, and Athens was all about philosophy. Adding to that, one might say that Antioch was all about business and immorality. Now, I go into all this detail, and all of this actually is important to us because it's this city of wicked Antioch in Syria that we will see will become the primary focal point for much of the rest of our study in the book of Acts. And it's in this city, even here right now, it's in this environment of pagan idolatry and of wickedness and of wealth and all of this commercial excess. It's in this environment that these Jewish believers in Jesus first began to share the hope of Jesus with their Greek neighbors. And then where we read in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So here it's this simple truth of the gospel of Jesus penetrated the hearts of these, even these pagan idolaters and and pleasure seekers. It's like this message of hope and forgiveness through repentance flooded their minds. And then we see the spirit starts to move and they turn to the Lord because it says there that the hand of the Lord was working so powerfully. You see, because God was with these followers of Jesus, their ministry was blessed And it was multiplied. And what a great reminder for us that a ministry can't turn people to the Lord unless the hand of the Lord is with them. You can easily turn people to a personality without the help of the Lord. You can turn people to an institution or to a social club without the help of the Lord. You can even turn people to a church. Or you can turn people to a ministry without the hand of the Lord But you can't turn people to the Lord without the hand of the Lord. And as we've seen happen so clearly in the work that happened in Samaria in chapter 8, and then what happened there in the house of Cornelius in chapter 10, this was a work that was done by the Lord. But this one was even different than all of those other ones. Because when the gospel had come to the Samaritans back in chapter 8, Remember, they were already partly Jewish. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch, then he was on his own reading out of Isaiah chapter 53. He was on his way back from Jerusalem, having been seeking after the Lord. Even Cornelius, though he was fully Roman, he was already a God-fearer, right? He had this deep respect for the God of Israel. He lived a moral life in many ways according to the law. Of Israel. But when the gospel came to Antioch, it came to a completely pagan people in an utterly pagan city. These people were just out and out idolaters, they were steeped in all of the sewage of that immorality. And just imagine what a great day it must have been when the gospel of the grace of God was first shared with those people and God's Spirit started to work in power, and each one of them personally was broken down, and then they turned in faith from the reality of everything that they had known and to receive and be received by the Lord Jesus. We watched the way in chapter 10 that the doors of faith had been opened officially to the Gentiles by Peter in the home of Cornelius, and now here... It's as though those very same doors have just been kicked down here in wicked Antioch. It says a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And notice with me this, who specifically it is, who specifically it was that says that the Lord used to do this incredible work. I'll give you a hint. The answer is back up there in verse twenty. All of these Jews had been driven from Judea. Many of them ended up in Antioch sharing with their Jewish neighbors. And there were, what does it say? But some of them who started to go and preach the Lord Jesus to the Gentiles. And some of the more literal translations from the Greek say that there were certain of them. And all of this, I think, is simply to point our attention to the fact that this amazing step forward for the gospel to the Gentiles was accomplished by a group of completely unnamed helpers of the faith. Note that we do not know the name of a single person who was involved in this work. And it was F.B. Meyer who said, he said, Antioch will ever be famous in Christian annals because a number of unordained and unnamed disciples fleeing from Jerusalem in the face of Saul's persecution, dared to preach the gospel to Greeks and to gather the converts into a church in entire disregard of the initial rite of Judaism." So understand, this was not some sort of strategic advance of the gospel that was planned by the elders back at the main office in Jerusalem. This wasn't even an announced outreach program in the Antioch Church Bulletin. Right? It was but some. It was specific believers who felt this specific burden from the Spirit and then simply responded to that version. And I bring it up because maybe there are some but-sums who are listening even today. We think about all of the different but-sums throughout all of church history, all of the men and the women who simply responded personally to God's personal call for their lives and the way that the Lord accomplished amazing things through them. And it was here, through them, right, through these unnamed believers, through their simple obedience, the spirit moved, the hand of the Lord worked. There was this incredible spiritual awakening in Antioch, which resulted in a great number believing and turning to the Lord. Look what it says In verse 22, it says, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Once again, news like this couldn't hope to be contained. Word soon reached back to the church at Jerusalem. But notice this time, I think we see that they react very differently than they did The last time, because remember back in chapter eight, when they heard what was happening up in Samaria, remember that they sent the big guns, right? They sent Peter and they sent John and they sent them up there to investigate and really to validate what was happening in Philip's ministry there. But here perhaps because they just tried to sit in judgment, like we looked at last week, of the things that Peter had done with Cornelius up in Caesarea, perhaps because they were coming to slowly understand that it was actually the Lord who had done these things, and it wasn't Peter. This time, they decide to send someone, not to investigate and not to validate, but I believe more so they sent someone to help facilitate. Because notice they sent warm-hearted, kindly Barnabas. Now, remember that Barnabas, we learned back in chapter 4, remember he was also from Cyprus. And he had generously sold some property that he had there. He'd given the money to the church. Remember, he was this incredibly gracious man with a heart for others. He earned himself the nickname, the son of encouragement. So he was a perfect fit for this job. So not surprisingly, we read in verse 23, that when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad And encouraged them all that was with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Then it says at the beginning of verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I love this because the son of encouragement was so encouraged by the encouraging things that he saw happening amongst these people that he encouraged them to just keep up the good work, guys right? Barnabas could clearly see that God was genuinely at work here at Antioch. And notice what it was specifically that it says that he saw there that made him glad. What does it say? That he saw the grace of God. So there was something there in the work and in the atmosphere amongst the believers and the followers of Jesus in Antioch, there was something that made Barnabas able to actually see the grace of God. And I love that picture because it's such a great reminder that when people look at us, it's important that they are also able to see the grace of God among us whether we're talking personally as individual believers or corporately as our local church body, or maybe we're talking collectively as the entire body of Christ, people should never look at us and see any kind of an emphasis on self or on adhering to man-made rules or you know our own human performance. But what they should see is the glorious grace of God. And they should see it, both at work in our lives, and they should also see it flowing out of our lives. There needs to be a real culture of grace, right? A grace culture in our fellowship with one another that is obvious and is evident and is unique and is refreshing. And a distinctive of Calvary Chapel churches is that we tend to be grace-based churches, We're people who are aware enough of our own failure and shortcomings personally, and we understand our own dependence on the Lord daily, and we understand the extent to which he's forgiven each one of us repeatedly. And so we're anxious to extend that very same sense of forgiveness and grace to the people around us, and then to encourage them to continue to walk in grace the same way that we ourselves are trying to walk in grace. And the key is that a grace culture, whether it's in the life of an individual or uh, the life of a church body, is that a grace culture always focuses not on what we need to do for God, but it always focuses on what God has already done for us. And then the way we simply live our lives in response to that. We live our lives focused on the finished work of Jesus. Because notice the way that Barnabas here further encouraged this already grace-based fellowship of believers in Antioch. He didn't exhort them to continue with the law, but instead he exhorted that they should continue with the Lord. See, he didn't lay down some sort of a legalistic set of do's and don'ts and of rules and regulations for them to follow now that they had come to faith. He said, hey, just continue in Jesus. Enjoy him and move forward with him and abide in him and make that the single purpose of your heart. And, you know, for for us, what if that was really the single purpose of our hearts as well? To simply abide in Jesus and to really rest in him and to enjoy him. And I have to say, I love the way that this verse was translated in the original King James Version, because it says that Barnabas encouraged them to cleave unto the Lord. And the sense of the word originally is to remain attached to and to adhere to. And so most simply, what Barnabas is telling these believers is hang on to Jesus and hang on to Jesus like your life depended on it, because really it does, doesn't it? So the the next time that that you find yourself wondering how in the world you are supposed to continue in the face of whatever it is that you're facing, whether it's the wickedness and the immorality of the Antioch that's all around you, or maybe it's some set of specific circumstances that's threatening you, I know it may sound a little bit overly simplistic, but at that moment, just try to cleave to Jesus. Just try to hang on to him and to live in his grace and to really lean into that grace and to depend on that grace as what it is that's going to carry you through. Because after all, didn't Jesus promise Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, Jesus said that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then we see this becomes the basis for Paul's entire approach to his own life, because in the rest of that verse, he writes, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What a great life strategy that is. So Barnabas encourages these growing believers. They're living in this pagan culture. He says, hey, I want you guys to continue just the way you started. And that's in the grace of God. And as a result, look what it tells us happened at the end of verse 24. It says that a great many people were added to the Lord. You see, grace begets grace. Not only could Barnabas see the grace of God and these followers of Jesus, but what this tells us is that even those outside of the fellowship of believers there in the city of Antioch saw the same thing. And the church's witness made this incredible impact on that immoral city so that a great many people were added to the Lord. You know, it is so true that so often we can best see the grace of God in the changed lives of those individuals who have really received and who have truly believed the gospel message. And this is how the gospel is spread. You see, the gospel proves itself by what it does. Because when men and women believe and receive the gospel in their hearts, the Bible says they become new, what, creations in Christ Jesus. And what you see is that people who were licentious and wicked and unclean, they become pure and set apart and clean. People who were unrighteous become faithful and become honest and become true. And this is the way the grace of God is so easily seen. So if we claim to believe in Jesus, let's make sure that we're revealing the reality of our faith by really living godly lives that are marked by grace. Right? Because the world is looking at us to see what this gospel that we talk about has actually done for us. So we need to live and we need to work and we need to walk in the world. We need to act and we need to love One another, so that unsaved people look at us and they can't help but confess that they see the grace of God at work in us and they see the grace of God all around us. Because here at Antioch, God's grace was so evident in his people that so many others were added to the church, that look what Luke says next in verse 25, that it was just at this point, it says that then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Now, some might see the timing of this as a little bit strange. Here our friend Barnabas leaves this growing, thriving ministry environment, and yet in reality, this makes perfect sense, because this is Barnabas saying, hey, I need some help here, right? This good work that God was doing in Antioch had grown to such a place that I think Barnabas starts looking around and he says, wow, look at all of these Hellenists, Grecians and these pagans that are being added to the church. Who is there that can really speak to them effectively? And he says, I know. There's that guy that I left at Tarsus seven or eight years ago, Saul. Remember that Barnabas from back in Acts chapter 9, when he'd been sent by the Lord to encourage Saul, remember Barnabas knew that God had commissioned Saul to minister specifically to the Gentiles. The Lord had said to Barnabas of Saul that he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the Jews. We recall that Barnabas had befriended Saul back in Jerusalem and no doubt the two of them had talked often about this special call that Saul had from God. And so I believe it's at this critical point that the Spirit spoke to Barnabas, and reminded him, directed him that this was precisely the place for Saul to really start his ministry. And so he set out immediately to seek after him. And doesn't that just make us appreciate Barnabas even more? Because in everything we've said about Barnabas, that he was generous and faithful and full of faith and of the Spirit, and he was an encourager, I think this also shows us that Barnabas was an extremely humble man because he could appreciate what had taken place in the life of Saul of Tarsus. He could recognize the remarkable ability and the gifting that this man had. He knew he was God's chosen vessel for the Gentiles. And so rather than sit there and think, wow, you know, I could just go on ministering up here in this thriving church with nobody bothering me. Instead, Barnabas says, you know what? It would be better for me to take a back seat." and just to let the man that God has called to take my place. And that's a great vision for the kingdom of God. And off he goes to Tarsus, as it says there, to seek Saul. And more literally what that means is he went there to hunt him up. And what this tells us is I think that Barnabas had to do some searching to find Saul. One author suggested that the word suggests a laborious search on Barnabas' part. And I believe this is a good indication that Saul was living up there and he was living there in obscurity because the Bible isn't clear that Saul was doing any specific ministry during this time. And some even suppose that most likely the guilt that he had over the way that he'd persecuted the church and the the reaction that his initial ministry attempts, the way they'd been rejected, all of these things left Saul languishing there in Tarsus until Barnabas until Barnabas, right, the son of encouragement, this ultimate encourager, he searches high and low, he seeks out Saul, and then I think he went to him and assured him, he says, Saul, you are God's man for this place, and you need to come with me right now. And what a reminder that we all need a Barnabas in our lives, don't we? We all need to be a Barnabas in someone else's life to really encourage people to do what it is that the Lord has for us and the way that the Lord wants to use us. And we need to be encouraged in spite of our failures and in spite of the guilt or the shame that we might feel because those may indeed be the very things that the Lord can use most powerfully in our lives and ministries. Because do you know what would become Paul's unique message to the church? What would be the theme that runs through most all of his writings, this special revelation that he would highlight for each and every one of us as believers? It's God's grace. And the Apostle Paul is often called the Apostle of Grace. We remember when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, we'll see it in Acts chapter 20, he talks about his own special calling. He says, the the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, Paul wrote more about God's grace than any of the other biblical writers. All of his letters open or they close, or sometimes both, with this salutation where he says, grace be to you. And we could easily spend a year of Sundays just looking at all the wonderful ways that he proclaims and the way that he explains God's grace working in our lives. And yet for now, what I think we need to note is that Saul was a man who could understand grace, and he could then teach that grace and pass it on to others because he was a man who had experienced the very same grace in his own life. And so he was God's man really to continue this ministry of grace here at the church in Antioch. And Barnabas was the one that God used to put all of the pieces together. Look what it says in verse 26. It says that when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. So together, Barnabas and Saul are using their giftings. They're gathering together the church at Antioch. They're making it strong and incidentally, Notice in verse 20, it originally said that the men from Cyprus had preached the Lord Jesus. Then in verse 23, we notice it says that Barnabas encouraged the believers. And then when we get here to verse 26, it says that Paul and Barnabas taught a great many people. And I bring it up because generally that's the order of effective ministry. First, there's preaching as we present the the gospel in an evangelistic way. And then there comes encouragement where we're saying, hey, you know, I'm rejoicing with you at what God's doing. Now you stick with the Lord, right? And then finally, there's teaching, which is so critical so that believers might mature in their faith. So preaching, encouraging, teaching, all of these things are important. All of these things are essential for a healthy ministry. It's just like we see starting here at Antioch. So much so, interesting, this wicked city of Antioch would come to produce some of the best teachers and the greatest thinkers in the history of the early church. They're all names which are difficult to pronounce and they they might not be known to us offhand, but they're men whose preaching and teaching has helped even to shape our faith, and it all came from here in Antioch. And in fact, as we alluded to a little earlier, it was this wicked, pagan cesspool of a city of Antioch, the city whose immorality polluted the whole of the Roman Empire. This is the city which we will see is about to become the base of operations for the Apostle Paul's ministry and all of his missionary journeys. It's going to really be the hub of the spread of the Christian faith throughout all the world. And not only was this an effective church here in Antioch, but it became the church that would send Paul out on his missionary journeys to win the world for Christ. There was a book called An Archaeologist Follows the Apostle Paul. And I love what the author writes. He says, here where all the gods of iniquity were worshipped, Christ must be exalted. And I think in thinking about the city of Antioch, there's an important encouragement for us as well, that we as God's people do not need to fear the evil that's all around us. Remember, Jesus promised us in, in Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church and what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Of course, we're encouraged in the word as God's people. We 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 shouldn't be taken in by evil. We should stay away from evil, but we need not live in fear of evil. And strategically, Antioch was a wonderful place for the you know to be the base of the spread of Christianity it was this wealthy port city and it was full of resources but i think even more so spiritually antioch was an especially wonderful place for the light of christianity to really shine so brightly out of the darkness of all of the wickedness that satan could possibly muster and what happened here in the city of Antioch is proof of what Jesus had just promised would be true. The gates of hell would not prevail against the work he was doing in the church. And we might think today about the overall wickedness in the world that we live in and the, the sway of Satan that really fuels our, our culture. We think about the materialism and all the worship of all the things that are so counter to God and really the resulting, the, the darkness and the hopelessness that just grip the hearts of so many. And it's into that that we get to infuse the light and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And what John tells us is that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I know if you're anything like me, sometimes you think it might be nice to live in a place that was a little more receptive to the things of God. And yet God has us here. He has us here for such a time of this, and I think it's very popular that we may soon find people are more receptive than they ever have been in the past. So be encouraged, right? Keep letting your light shine here. Let God's grace be seen here and trust him in the midst of the darkness that we feel here. And remember Antioch. Remember the things that the Lord did in and through that extremely godless place, and remember that no situation and no location is hopeless. Notice next, in addition even to all of that, there was something very special and very significant, very noteworthy that first happened here in this wicked city. It says that the year they were assembled there, they were teaching a great many people. Look at the end of verse 26. It says that, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, all the way up till now, we've seen them called disciples and believers and witnesses and brothers and saints, followers of the way, and now finally they would be called Christians. Now, in the Latin construction, when you added the ending en to any word, it meant of the party Of. So they took the Latin ending ian and they added it to the Hebrew Christ and they came up with Christian. So a Christian is most simply a person of the party of Jesus. It's like they were saying they were Jesusites or Jesus people or the Christ ones. And some language experts, I love this, they say the idea of the word Christian more so means a little Christ. Now, I'll take that one, right? Wouldn't it be great if someone called you little Jesus because they saw so much of him in you? And some of you have heard me make mention before of Pastor Harry Ironside. And he tells a story of when he was ministering in China years and years ago. He said that they would frequently introduce him as Yasu Yan, now, at first, he didn't know what the word meant, but then he asked about it, and they explained that Yasu was the Cantonese word for Jesus, and Yan was the word for man. So he was being introduced as the Jesus man. And I love that because at the heart of it, isn't that really the heart of what it is to be a Christian? to be a Jesus man or a Jesus woe man, right? There's no higher privilege than to represent Jesus in this world. We belong to Christ, and the Bible says we're united with Christ, and so now we're supposed to seek to just live out the life of Christ in front of everyone, and this is exactly what Paul meant when he wrote to the Galatians, in Galatians 2.20 where he says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So may God give us the grace to just be more consistent Christians, Because truly, there's no greater testimony to the power of the gospel than that. And there's nothing that's going to advance the spread of the gospel message than our lives lived the way that Jesus lived his. And you may have heard this question asked before. It's a good one. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is His grace evident in our lives and evident in our our interactions, both with those who are inside and those who are outside the body of Christ? Is there a a sweetness in our speech? Is there a, a gentleness in our manner that people find refreshing and uplifting? And is there a genuine concern that we have for other people. And that's precisely what we see in our, we're gonna see it quickly, our final few verses from our text today. It's the, this witness that the church of Antioch had. We've seen God's work at Antioch, we've seen God's grace in Antioch. Now we're gonna see God's grace really flowing from Antioch. It says in verse 27 that in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So into this atmosphere of teaching and exhortation and preaching, in came this prophet named Agabus, who, given the opportunity to share this prophetic word, said that a famine would soon fall. Now, we're not told exactly how it was that Agabus showed by the Spirit that this famine was on the way, but Luke is careful to confirm for us that this famine indeed did occur, speaking most likely of a time that was recorded during the reign of Claudius Caesar when the crops were very poor for many years. And what we do see is that the Spirit Confirmed this prophetic word from Agabus in the hearts of the Antioch Christians, and watched the way they took the word seriously, and they very generously responded to this coming need. It says in verse twenty-nine and thirty that then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So we can tell that these were truly disciples and truly Christians because of the way they gave generously through the church to meet the needs of the church. Notice there it says that they gave each according to his ability, the ability of their resources. It says that all gave some, But those who had more gave more. But what that also means is that they each gave according to the ability of the faith that they had. They gave with the ability to trust that their gift to God's work was a worthy investment in his kingdom and wasn't simply a personal loss to them. Because the truth is that our faithful giving to the work of the Lord is a direct expression of the faith that we have personally in the Lord. Because whenever we give our tithes, we give acknowledging that God has been so faithful to provide for us, and we know he's going to continue to be just as faithful to take care of all of our future needs. And for these believers here at Antioch, Their giving was an evidence of that work of grace that the Lord had done in their hearts. And it was an evidence that they sensed this connection in the Spirit as they were united with the church back in Jerusalem. Now, I know we've said too much. We've gone too long, especially for a live stream. You're probably up, headed to the refrigerator by now. And yet, the subject of God's grace... And the different ways that it was manifest there in in Antioch, the way these believers first were coming out of the, the darkness of their pagan idolatry, this critical hinge, right, that happened here in Antioch, not just geographically or strategically for the spread of Christianity, but even more so understanding that more critical hinge of God's grace. The way that it was at work in the lives of these first believers in the very same way that it needs to be at work in our lives even today. And I hope that that's worth a few extra minutes to really consider this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we do thank you for your grace, Lord, that you've poured out so abundantly on each one of us. Lord, we thank you for the way that you reached out and you pulled us out of our own individual darkness, Lord, and you translated us into the kingdom of the Son of light, Lord. And so we pray, Father, that that same grace that you exercised, Lord, would be evident in each one of our lives, Lord, not through our own efforts, Lord, not because we're, we're trying harder to make people see it, more, Lord, but simply because we're living attached to your son, Jesus, Lord, that we're clinging on to him, Lord, that, uh, that we truly would be like those little Jesuses, Lord, that people would see running around. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that through that, your spirit would draw many unto you. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name.